How about a little bit of January elk hunting talk? Here we go. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the Western Huntsman Podcast. I believe this is episode 140. Uh, This is Jim Huntsman, your host, coming at you from the Broken Tine Studio right here in Clark Fork, Idaho. And I have got uh, a new friend on for this week. Uh, You know, we've had such serious conversations the last uh, month or so, it seems like, since before Christmas. (laughs) And so I thought it might be kind of fun to kick back and just talk a little elk hunting uh, from somebody who was referred to me, and I just met him tonight, and you're going to meet him too, and I think you're going to like him as much as I do. His name is Bob Terwilliger. Did I pronounce your name right, Bob? Yes, you did, Jim. All right. So uh, Bob is down in Colorado, and he is a an elk hunting guide. He's a passionate fly fisherman, uh, and he is uh, somebody that was referred to me by a mutual friend. Uh, I don't know if you guys know him or not. His name is Dirk Durham, uh, but anytime Dirk refers somebody, I usually jump on it because it always works out pretty well. So, Bob, I appreciate you joining me, man. Glad to be here. I love to talk elk hunting for sure. Yeah, I, uh, I, I mean, it's obviously one of my favorite topics. I want to... Uh, I, I, I'm real curious about what you do as a guide and uh, all that kind of stuff, and I want to get into all that. But let's kick it off. Uh, we were kind of talking before I hit record there. Um, let's kick it off with a little bit of uh, your background and and who you are, and we'll we'll uh, take it from there, man. Yes, yeah, sounds good. So, uh, as Jim mentioned, I'm Bob Twilliger. I live uh, in Colorado. I've been here almost 30 years now. Um, Actually, I'm very fortunate that I grew up in a family that was extremely strong in in the hunting heritage in upstate New York, hunting whitetails um, and hunting wild turkeys. My my grandfather had horses, and I followed him and my dad around from the time I was about six years old. And they really taught me the ropes with hunting ethics, safety, fundamentals, all those kinds of things that kind of set me up. Didn't really learn mm-hmm. ride what I would call good good until i moved here to colorado my grandfather threw me on a horse when i was about six and just said hold on <laughs> that's the way it went back then but um you know i've been hunting out for you know if i include the time following them around for for 60 years i'm entering my 15th year of guiding um i got into that late as a second career um when i moved to colorado in the early 90s um you know it was when i first got into elk hunting and the uh, first 14 years, I hunted on my own. And as I was hunting, I tended to run into one of the local outfitters in the area I hunted for years and uh, his crew out on the trails. And, and a lot of times they'd see me packing elk and stuff. And after a few years of that, seeing me packing these bulls 
time, they'd say, hey, you need to come down and work for us. Mm-hmm. And the more I thought about it and uh, talked it over with my wife, I said, boy, this would be an excellent chance to get out of corporate America. I actually worked in IBM for 36 years, um, but I managed the last six or seven years uh, I was in IBM. I was actually guiding full time to set myself up for a second career. So um, it's worked out really well. Um, certainly uh, enjoy it. And the thing with guiding is, although there's trade-offs about it, and we'll get into that, but um, the nice thing with guiding is when I was guiding Elkins full-time, which I did for nine, nine years, um, I was out in the woods every every fall, seven weeks, um, guiding Elkins, you know. Yeah. And now in my mid-60s, I've backed off um, where I'll guide a couple of weeks a year because, frankly, I'm hunting more on my own again with my son and with close friends and uh, family. And, um, but I still guide a fair amount of fishing in the summertime. So, oh, do you? You do the, the, the as a fly fishing guide? Oh, it says it right here on your Instagram. Yeah. 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 I want to We'll talk I'm a little fly back country, so. yep. what's, a, what's that? I'm strictly backcountry. You know, the, the, oh, the gotcha. types of operations I've worked in are back off the beaten path. So everything is on horseback and mule. And, um, you know, it generally takes high clearance four wheel drive to get into the places where the base camps are. And then, from there on, we take off on horseback and get further back. So, gosh, what a life, man! That that just sounds fantastic. Especially, I don't know. I I'm looking. I'm on your Instagram page as we're recording here, which is uh, for those listening, Bob T seven five six at Bob T seven five six, and I'll have that linked in the show notes here. But uh, it was it was funny when uh, Dirk was telling me he's like, man, you got to get this Bob guy on. Uh, and I'm like, oh yeah, how come? And, and he's like, Bob is, <laughs> Bob is who I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, well that's that saying before. something. And so I, I jumped on here and I could see why, uh, I mean, gosh, you don't see guys your age in that great a shape very often. You're in great shape. Yeah. You're, you're clearly, uh, passionate about the outdoors and, and elk hunting and fly fishing and, and, um, everything that you know that life entails and it looks like you do a great job at it i mean how did how did you get to this point where you felt like you were you were a competent enough elk hunter uh and and you're like you know what i want to be an elk guide well you know that that uh again i i'll give credit to my dad and grandfather because a lot of the fundamentals i learned about hunting you know whether it be archery or rifle and in marksmanship with both um, and all those core hunting skills, you know, I grew up with. Um, but then when I came to Colorado, you know, for the first 14 years here, I hunted on my own. And when I first got here, I mean, hunting elk was was a dream of mine. And I was like a sponge when I got here. I mean, every chance I had when I wasn't working or with family, I was out backpacking in the backcountry, you know, fishing. Um, you know, of course, during the hunting seasons, and this was before on X time. So, yeah, you know, really, it was topo maps and get out there and and burn some rubber under your feet. You know, yeah, for sure. Um, so I did a lot of that, and uh, you know, the the other thing I'll talk about is that when it came to calling, you know, I did learn to use the diaphragm call back east for turkey. So switching over and starting to learn for elk, you know that that came to me fairly quickly for the basics. Mm-hmm. And then of course you get to meet, you get to meet guys like Dirk and then things like YouTube come about and 
I'm a big component of going out there on YouTube and I listen to other guys bugle and that kind of stuff and learn different variations, different cadences. Cause I'm, I'm always trying to broaden my, my skills in those kinds of areas. So, you know, it was, it was really just going out and digging in, you know, as far mm-hmm. as the horse thing, I took a ton of horseback riding lessons. I took some packing classes. And then when we worked, you know, when I got involved in my first outfitting job, you know, which was 2008, um, you know, I just, just kept building from there there's so much to learn you know for me i would say probably the the part that would take me the longest because is is the horse stuff because that really needs to come second nature you know yeah you're getting up 3 30 in the morning catching stock and getting them settled and ready and taking clients out riding in the dark you know an hour and a half two hours so those skills they they take a little bit more time to build unless you've been doing it from an early age and certainly i had ridden from an early age but not the kind of writing I've been doing here for the last 30 years. So, man, you know, I, I, I'm always so on the fence when it comes to, you know, having horses again, I, I used to have, I used to have horses, uh, and, and they were, they were great for the type of hunting I was doing then. I, I don't know that they work great in the country I'm in now, but, uh, they, they were, they were great for that open a little more open country like colorado i was i was in utah where i'm what i'm talking about here uh, and we'd take them up on yeah. mule deer hunts and and uh whatnot i don't know i but i'm on the fence because they i had like this uh the last year i had i had two of them in fact i, I technically still own the one i, I kind of gave them to a uh it's not a dude ranch but it's it's similar to that he's a cutter uh great horse yeah but he was meaner than a rattlesnake, except for with me. Nobody else could ride him. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah. he, uh, the, the, I guess what I'm saying is that last year, the horses cost, they ended up costing me a fortune. And I just couldn't afford it. And this was years ago. Uh, and I, I ended up just kind of leaving that horse there, uh, what, 2012, 2013, uh, when we moved back to Idaho and, and, uh, now my daughters are bugging me to get horses, but I just, I, I don't want to be tied down with them, I think is the biggest thing in the, and the expense. And so what's your take on that? And how advantageous are, are they for you as a hunter and a guide? Well, you know, there's, there's a couple different aspects to it. I mean, as a hunter myself, um, the ideal situation is, is that I use my animals to, get my gear into the back country. Mm-hmm. And then, and I've, unfortunately I've got a buddy then that will then take my mules out, keep them at his ranch and then come get me when I'm done. That's, that's the ideal situation because, you know, as you well understand, you know, by the time you bring your gear in, you know, and um, then if you kill elk and then you got to get your elk out, your gear out. I mean, it turns into quite a, quite a mission you know and i i tend to hunt pretty remote country i mean some of my favorite places to hunt elk you know when i'm on my own it's it's a six seven mile trek into the back country and then you know i'm hunting six eight ten miles a day depending on the season and the weather uh, as far as miles putting on my feet so mm-hmm. um what i have done before though is uh if i don't have somebody to bring them in or take them back out then i will load the animals up and and you know i've always He's been in the belief with the stuff I've done on my own that I bring one horse per person. Um, and we load our horses up with feed, some feed for the horses with our gear. Mm-hmm. Um, and we walk them in because 
you know, the more horses you have back there, the more work you have, the more time you spend spend feeding them and watering them and everything else. So, like, if it's me and my son, we'll bring my two mules. We'll bring some feedback for a couple of days. And then I've got hobbles that I can, you know, my the animals that I've had, I train them so they can be hobbled. So we come back midday some days. We can take them out to some green areas and hobble them up and let them, let them get some freedom and hop around and eat until they're content. Mm-hmm. Um, and tie them back up again. So that's kind of the way that I hunt with them on my own. Now, from an outfitting business, you know, you see really two different uh, deals. You know, a lot of outfitters are going to have spike camps that are, you know, two to three hours from where their base camp is. And they'll use the same strategy where they'll pack, you know, guides and clients, maybe a cook in, you know, with pack stock and riding stock, get you back in there. And then the packers will pull the animals out until the end of your hunt, or unless you kill something, they send it back in. Um, or, or if you're hunting out of the base camp, which, you know, many outfitters have as well, then those, those animals are really, you know, essential because you're talking about people that don't spend the time in the backcountry like we do and are in the kind of physical shape that we have. And without those horses, you'd never get them in and out of the hunting country, um, you know, most of them. So is it ever a challenge with clients coming in that have never seen even a horse in real life? You know, they've, they've seen them on TV kind of thing and, and trying to get them comfortable enough on horseback to get them back there. And, and I ask that because, uh, uh writing, I know the kind of country you're in. Cause I, I could see it all over your Instagram here. That's not like entry level horseback riding country. No, it's not. And you know, that's a, that's a really great point. And the thing I'll tell you is that this is the third operation I've worked for. Um, you know, all of the outfitters that I've worked for all have excellent stock mm-hmm. and they have riding stock for all abilities. And they are very diligent about understanding somebody's uh, riding abilities that they've never ridden before. And actually what I'll tell you is a lot of times the people that have never ridden before, they can do better than the ones that can come in and tell you, oh, yeah, I can ride, I can ride. And you find out when they get on there, <laughs> it's all talk, you know, because they yeah. <laughs> may have ridden something on a trail ride, like up in Rocky Mountain National Park, where it's follow the leader. But they really, you know, that doesn't mean you can put them on a more experienced horse. Yeah. Um, so, you know, outfitters do have highly seasoned stock that are good for all abilities. They've got different size stock typically. And they do a darn good job of matching clients up to their ability. Now, of course, with a horseback hunt, you know, you've got to have those kind of candid conversations to say, look, you know, it's not a problem. This horse or this mule is going to take care of you. You know, you just got to trust in them and and do as we tell you, you know. And I'll tell you, 99.99% of the clients that I've guided over the last 15 years all fit that category where it's really, uh, it's really not a problem. If they're game... Outfitters have stock that can accommodate them. So, hmm. so, and that that kind of brings me to this this question as as a guide, Bob. What is that lifestyle like? I, I've just always been a little bit uh, curious about you know doing that as for a living. Is what's frustrating about it? What's what's rewarding about it? Tell me a little bit about being a guide. 
Sure, absolutely. So the first thing I'll start out with is that, that you know, the one thing you'll see with, with a guide, the guiding business, and a lot of outfitters run into this, is that it does, by nature, because it's not typically a year-round position, um, it's a lot of physical work, it does attract, you know, typically younger people, and, you know, younger in their careers, maybe haven't even started their serious life career yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of these young folks will come into it, and they, you know, it kind of has this image out there that people that don't understand it, that it's a glory job and it's put your Western boots on, put your hat on, put on your chinks or your chaps and look the part and you go out there and ride horses. And, you know, that's what it is like a movie star. (laughs) And I can tell you that it's, you know, if you're not, if you're not ready to work hard um, and get little sleep, uh, it's not going to be for you. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard work. You know, during the season, during the hunting season, particularly archery, the days are the longest. Mm-hmm. You're getting up at 3, 3.30 in the morning to catch stock, and you're probably not getting to bed at night till 10.30 or 11 o'clock, getting up the next day and doing it again. Um, wow. You know, the other thing that I found that I've seen is that, um, you know, a lot of guys will come in and they've got the hunting skills and, and they want to guide. And, 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 you know, most of them are really, really good hunters. but when you go work for an outfitter, you know, they don't have the luxury that they can have, you know, an unlimited staff and all these unique skills. So you really need to learn, you know, and they're, they're patient. They'll work with you. They'll help you build your skills if you put the, forth the effort. But you've got to build your skills beyond guiding and hunting or fishing, you know, to think of horsemanship, being able to pack, help out with the packing, and sometimes even helping out with cooking, camp jacking, cutting firewood, you know, you name it. You're kind of a jack of all trade so yeah that's really important that you got to go into it with that mindset um the other thing where i think where sometimes people can have a misunderstanding and is uh you know you need to be a people person this job is a service business you are the face to the client for the operate for the outfit that you work for um and you need to view it that way and you you need to do the best of your ability to make sure that whoever your clients or clients are that they have the best experience possible you know, the people that you're working for counting on that. Um, what happens? How do you handle it when you're when you're on a an elk hunt, say, and uh, maybe the, the client doesn't tag out, maybe doesn't even have an opportunity on an elk? Uh, how do you handle that in terms of like the customer satisfaction side of it? Do, do you guys set them up, first of all, in the beginning? Like, hey, you know. Uh, here's, here's the typical success rate with us, you know, here's what we got to do to make this happen and then see it doesn't, uh, how do you handle that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, and realistically, you know, that starts with the outfitter or it can start with the guide when, when they book a hunt, you know, a lot of outfitters will have some of their key guides. I used to, for a couple of the outfitters I worked for, they would have me talk to clients and I would kind of be the, the client interface, particularly with, uh, first operation where I worked my way up, I was the head guide there and even taught some of the, the uh, outfitters guide school was taught the big game guiding segment. In fact, that's how I came in contact with Dirk years ago. But, um, you know, the outfitter is really important that whoever books these hunts, that they have an open and candid conversation. Now the outfitters that I worked for in Colorado, um, you know, and this is my third one, uh, they all operate on public land. And you know you have some feel for what 
hunting on public land is in Colorado. There can be a lot of people certain times of the year. Yeah. And sometimes the hunting can be really, and sometimes it can be really tough, you know, and things like weather, you know, running into other hunters where you do or don't, they can all affect the success rate. Um, and so you got to have, have those kinds of conversations and set the client's expectations up front. You know, typically during the archery season, I'm going to say that it can be a little bit easier to get a shot opportunity, um, particularly for all the bulls start getting called to too much and they start getting call shy. But um, still, it can be tough. You know, you get a lot of hot weather um, when the window of opportunity is more limited. So it's really about setting that expectation up front with with the hunter and saying, look, what we can guarantee you is we're going to work our tails off and do everything in our power to get you a shot opportunity. Um, you know, and if things go right, typically, you know, it's this percentage of hunters that during this season that we're able to do that for, but you know, it is what it is. And that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of where you have, you have to be open and honest about it. Have you ever had somebody like, um, totally screw the pooch on a shot or, or maybe, uh, had the animal bust them before, you know, because of something they did, they sneezed or something. I I don't know. <laughs> and then they turn around and blame you oh, guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely. That, that definitely. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll give you a classic example. Um, as you all know, you know, one of the keys, of course, when, you know, particularly with archery, you know, when we get into a setup situation, we're getting, you know, typically we got two hundreds to one guide and you got them out on what I would call the point where and then the guide is back in the middle and you're hoping to draw that bull one way or another past one of those hunters well all it takes is one guy hearing the bull coming and if he doesn't think the, the bull is coming his way or he doesn't think he's coming fast enough he tries to slip in you know he tries to slip in on his own to kill that animal mm-hmm. and you know that's one of the key things that we preach because there's obviously numerous things that can happen with that i mean probably Probably the least worrisome is that he blows the shot opportunity. More severe is that he gets himself lost because he walks off and now he doesn't know where he is. Or worst case is you, when you set those hunters up and you go back as a guide and you start calling to this animal, you know you have a safe situation. When you get guys that are trying to sneak around when that bull's moving around, before you know it, God forbid, somebody can get shot too. So Yeah, yeah, for sure. I feel like I'm just throwing question after question here, but you have uh, you have a lot of info, and and I want to I want to kind of pick your brain with something. You mentioned sure. um, that it's a good opportunity prior to the bulls getting call shy uh, in September. Do you have a bead on a, a roughly when that transition happens? Because that that I agree that does happen. The the bulls will start getting call shy in in uh, crowded units. Uh, where it's it's like I don't know what's going on. They just uh, they won't talk back, um, and uh, yeah. or they talk back and then they keep going. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They just they. It's like they you can't you could talk to them, but they won't engage. Um, that happened to me. Uh, I don't know, like week two last September, up in a in a more crowded unit. I I ended up hunting that first part of September, uh, where they were talking and then they just shut up. Uh, do you have a bead on when? about roughly when that happens in the month of September? I mean, in Colorado, I certainly do. Um, You know, when that happens is uh, there's no doubt that everybody has it stuck in their head that the middle of September is the peak of the rut. 
And the other thing that makes it worse here in Colorado, not that they give out that many tags, but it does mean more hunters in the woods. And any more hunters in the woods is equals more hunters in the woods is that that generally coincides with our muzzleloading season, yeah, which as yeah. you know, falls right in the middle of archery. Mm-hmm. So that middle of the month, you know, now if you can get into an area where those bulls aren't being hassled, of course, that's a great time of the month of September to hunt. But I typically like to go right before that and hunt up to that period. If I've got my choice, simply because I'll deal with the fact that they're not maybe quite as active, but they're also, can be more responsive and being responsive doesn't always have to mean that they're talking to me all the way in i mean i might get them to talk to me once or twice and then they come in silent and check me out out of curiosity you know because those hormones are just starting to kick in and they're just starting to feel the roots and 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 understand what what time is nearing so yeah interesting yeah so prior to the 10th i i guess it would be a rough guesstimate yeah prior to in, in a lot of prior to the 15th yeah yeah Yep. That, I'd say approaching that middle of the month, um, that's when I typically like to hunt. The bulls are starting to get more active then. You know, the other thing that, that I find generally early in the season is that, um, you know, early in the season, those big bulls, they don't have those harems with them then. And mm-hmm. you know as well as I do that the more eyes there are, the easier it is to get busted. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> so. You know, those bigger bulls, sometimes you can stand a better chance of, of getting a crack at one, um, you know, before they get grouped up with 15, 20, even 30 cows, you know? Yeah, it's it's funny. I, one of my best one of my best days, when I say best days, I mean in terms of how many elk interactions uh, I, me and my buddy Steve got. Uh, we were out hunting together, and I usually hunt alone. And uh, but uh, every once in a while, I'll go out with somebody. And and him and I went out this one day, and it's like I don't even know. I, I think it was September second, something like that. It was one of the best days. We had probably four or five different actual encounters where the not the, when I say encounter, I don't mean the elk just kind of responded, and then we never heard from them again. I mean they came in, you know, and circumstantially we we couldn't we couldn't get one, but. Uh, it was a great day, and it was super early, and it was totally unexpected for me because I had the mindset, like you were saying, that, hey, you know, wait till mid-September or whatever. Uh, and then the other funny part of that is, because we keep we keep bringing up Dirk, is uh, last year, him and I, we were texting back and forth because we were, we were kind of hunting. Uh, regionally, we were in the kind of the same nick of the woods, um, pro- I don't know, 40, 50 miles apart. And uh, he's like... I, I was telling him, man, it, it's just been quiet. I mean, just been quiet. And he's going, oh, yeah, it has been quiet. But just wait until the 23rd. That They they really tune up on the 23rd. And I go out the morning of the 23rd, and no kidding, right at sunrise, I call this bull in, and uh, he's uh, a little smaller than I wanted. And I'm normally, Bob, I'm normally not picky at all. Uh, he would have died on a normal yeah. day, but he had... He had his big brother a uh, hundred yards away that was that was bugling his head off too, and so that that smaller one kind of slipped away, and I I snuck in on that bigger one and and uh, sent an arrow at him because he came right into a bugle, sent an arrow at him, but yeah. uh, uh, he, I I missed because the arrow deflected, and and so anyway, I've told the story on the podcast probably a few too many times, but it was just funny how that worked out because it'd been quiet, I'd gotten no responses for like ten days. 
and and all of a sudden it, Dirk says, "Yeah, wait wait till the twenty third And I, I hit it on the twenty third, and and it was one of the busier days I'd had all year. <laughs> so there's something to it. I just yeah. I always I always I think that that's we do this series called the School of September, uh, and, and that's where in fact yeah. I had to get you on for that. Uh, but that's where we um, we really try to dial in. Okay, what week should we focus on? What week is is going to be like the key week during September, uh, depending on the on the unit. Do you feel like do you hunt any more places than than Colorado, or are you mainly in Colorado because of your guiding? You know, I've hunted for the most part. I, I've only hunted in Colorado. I, years ago, I went with some some guys who I met here. Mm-hmm. Um, they both have passed on. They were like my dad's age, who I met actually the first year I hunted here, and uh, they took a real liking to me. I was in my early thirties then, and they they liked the way I worked and could knock elk. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Um, we went to, we went to Montana one year um, in Beaverhead National Forest, which it was. I mean, I got onto a big herd of elk. Unfortunately, um, didn't kill one because uh, you know that the night before opening day we got like three foot of snow. Oh no! And, oh, it was brutal. And you know, I'm a young guy. guy Back then I'm getting around in it and they just couldn't get around in it. And, you know, opening day, you know, I, I just kept going and trudging through all that snow. And I found where there was a, there was a big herd of elk there that day. I couldn't quite position. I heard both bugling, but I was headed back there the next morning. And they said, well, we're going to head on down because, you know, we just can't get around the snow and go hunt some lower country, which we did, but yeah, it, it wasn't the same. God, that always, so, there's nothing worse than that kind of situation. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. I love waking up in camp. That's what I that's what I don't miss about hunting Utah, man. Is waking up and having, you know, going to bed. There's no snow on the ground. You wake up and and you look out the tent or the trailer, whatever you're staying in, and there's and there's two feet. And it's like, okay, it's not just about whether or not I can get around on the mountain. Now it's can I get my truck off this mountain? Because you know, <laughs> it yeah. just comes out of nowhere. But yeah. what is it about elk hunting? Um, that that you're so passionate about what what is it the communicating with the animal is it the country they take you in like tell me a little bit about why elk hunting is is such a big deal to you you know for me the real draw is i mean you know I, i'm just they're so majestic number one to watch them and see them in the wild is just super exciting you know and of course the calling and getting them screaming at you you know when you can get them close mm-hmm. and see that scream coming out of their nose um it's just, it just doesn't get any more exciting in that. And then, you know, of course, like you said, the country, and I don't care if you're getting up during the archery season and catching the sun when it's first coming up or, you know, during the later rifle seasons, even though it's cold, you know, and you get fresh snow and how pretty the mountains are, you know, it's, for me, it's really all the above, but it's, as I stated in the beginning, you know, hunting's been in my blood since I was a young kid and I, I just enjoy being out there and enjoy being out there in the wilderness and, and getting after these things, you know, and the physical challenge has always been an attraction for me too. It's no doubt about it. It's a physical test. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Man, I like mule deer hunting. It's almost time too. I look forward to mule deer hunting every single year. It's what I grew up on. That is not to say that I'm great at it, but now there's some really good resources available, and my favorite one is over at Eastman's Hunting Journals, where they have the mule deer course. 
This course has all sorts of digital information for you to go through as an e-course. It's got the basic safety, training and preparation, choosing a hunt, making a hunt plan, gear, scouting, glassing, field judging, rifle hunting, bow hunting, hunt strategy, harvest, the experience. All of it is right there in one spot for you to access and learn from some of the best like Dan Picard and Brian Barney. So up your mule deer hunting game by going to taghub.eastmans.com forward slash courses forward slash online mule deer course. You know what? Just look up Eastman's hunting journals and you'll find it. It's super easy. Let them know I sent you. You won't regret it. Can I break down um, a couple of questions that I would normally ask during school of September and get get your take on how you would approach certain s- scenarios or sure. whatever uh, when elk yep. hunting? When sure. you are let, we were talking about kind of breaking down the season from early September, mid September, late September kind of thing. Uh, sticking to this archery September elk hunting thing or or what whatever with those muzzle loaders that go out in October in Colorado. Um, how does your calling change from early okay. mid to late September? Does that make sense? Mid mid to late September. How how yeah. does it change from early to mid to late September? You know, um, what I'll say is that in the beginning, you know, I'm not I'm not going out there early early in September, and in fact, that I don't do it that often. Where where I go through a full bugle, I tend to make you know, location bugles, high-pitched whistles. And the other thing that I'll say that I do too, and I, I've kind of adjusted my calling over the last eight eight years or so as more and more pressures picked up here in Colorado, is that I I tend to call softly at first, even when I'm cow calling. You know, I don't – I'm not out there ripping, uh, you know, and typically uh, I won't crank up the intensity unless – you know, I get an elk answer in me and he starts cranking up the intensity, you know, then I would do that, you know, but, uh, I t- tend to call soft in the beginning. I'm just making light location bugles, see if I can get something to answer me. Um, you know, and then of course, if I get something to answer, I'm not going to keep calling to him. I'm going to try to figure out where, where is he? What's my best way to get to him without him seeing me or smelling me and slip in there as close as I can before I try to set up and, and, and then try to get him to answer back to me, you know, and early in the month, I'm not going to overdo it with the calling. Um, you know, I'm going to get in there and I might make uh, some soft cow calls. You know, I like to, I like to use different calls and, and try to sound like two different elk talking back and forth to one another, you know, and I'm typically moving around, snapping limbs, that kind of stuff. Cause a lot of times early in the season, these bulls will sneak in um, and with guiding, you know, I've had quite a few kills with bulls coming in silent the first half of September. Now, when you get into the latter part of September, you know, then a lot of times you can get out there and particularly on, like you said, on the right day, um, in those, the best situations, as we know, is when you have competition for cows. Um, you know, say if you've got cows that are in, in heat in the area, uh, you know, and you've got those satellite bulls firing off and the herd bulls are screaming back at them. Mm-hmm. You know, those are situations where I can get more aggressive, you know, and, and I'll use a lot of the tactics that I've actually 
discussed in you know with Dirk over the years where you know if I get a bull that's that's answering a, a cow call maybe let's say and he's let's say that he's hanging up um you know up again I'll just my same tactics where I'm kind of moving around so I'm you know because obviously we know elk don't stay in one place and uh, if I'm calling for somebody and uh you know one of the times I'm going to cow call and when he goes to answer back at me I'm going to scream over top of him and a lot of times once twice I've had him come I've come come with a full head of steam you know mm-hmm. so yeah I love I love the uh the call right over the top of them when they start getting a little bit more agitated if if you will yep <laughs> it just cut them off yep. uh that seems to work every time but um that i i okay i i know again bob i apologize i'm going all over the place here i'm bouncing all over the place but no no worries uh you say yep. something and it, it like spikes a, a question here <laughs> um when if for for the as a service to some of the listeners that might be thinking about hiring a guide uh, for next year or whatever, planning planning on it down the road here. Um, what are some things that clients do that frustrate you as a guide that uh, that could be detrimental to their own hunt? Um, one of the biggest things that that I would say where you start number one is that what I would tell clients is, and I, I tell my own clients this is that nobody wants to see you get a bull more than your guide, even you. And that, so you got to start with that premise that says your guide, if he's worth a darn, if he or she is worth a darn, nobody wants you to get a bull more than they do. So the first thing what that means is that you got to trust them. You mm-hmm. have to trust them. You know, it's okay to, to make suggestions, um, but, you know, at times I've had people, I mean, I had a guy one time and he was an avid whitetail hunter back in the middle part of the country. And he couldn't understand why we were on the move all the time. He wanted me to put him on on a stand. He wanted to sit there from dusk till dawn, you know. Man, <laughs> a funny story here. He kept at me, and he kept at me. And uh, you know, one day he said, "You know, Bobby says he says I just can't figure this out cutting out." He says, "I never know when we're hunting and when we're when we're not hunting." He said, <laughs> and I I looked at him. I said, "Well, I said let me make it real simple for you." When we step out of this tent in the morning, we're hunting. And we're hunting until the time we step back in this tent at dark. <laughs> wow. Did and you ever said, did you ever cave in and, and let him sit of, on a stand? No, I did not. I, I worked my tail off to try to get him some. But Good yeah, the thing I'm gonna say is trust your guy. Come in the best physical shape that you possibly can. Um and then the other thing is, you know, particularly people that don't live at our altitude in Colorado is probably the worst because, you know, during the archery season, I'm up over 11,000 feet. In fact, even this year, first rifle, I was hunting over 11,000 feet. Um, you know, you really have to focus on staying hydrated. And uh, that's a really hard thing for people to do, you know, and consequently, yeah. that's one of the primary causes of altitude sickness is, is not drinking enough, you know, and, um, so those those are a couple of the real key ones, hmm. you know. And then, go ahead. You know, the other thing I was going to say on the guide side of things, you know, this is important, but it, it relays into what you're saying is is that one of the biggest challenges about being a guide 
you know, is to understand your client and their abilities because your ability to hunt elk with a client is not going to be like what it is when you're hunting on your own. You're going to be limited to their physical abilities, their physical shooting ability, and it's going to be your responsibility to try to get them an opportunity that they can take advantage of. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, it kind of works both ways, but from a client standpoint, you know, once they make a decision to go with an outfitter and outfitters are generally pretty good about matching clients up with the right guide, you know, um, you know, and also let's say that a client goes by themselves and they're going to be matched up with another client. Well, the outfitter isn't going to stick a guy that's maybe, you know, 25 pounds overweight in the middle of the country and, you know, you know, in the middle of his career with somebody that's younger and not notch physical fitness, because then you set the guy up for failure. You got, you got neither one of those guys are going to be happy depending mm-hmm. on what you do or don't do. Right. So, Oh yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. What do you think when you're talking about the out of staters that come in, uh, you know, guys from the Midwest or, or the East coast or whatever, um, obviously elevation is, is an obvious one. Uh, you know, being in shape for the mountains is an obvious one. But outside of those two things, what do you think clients that are coming from those areas uh, is like the biggest surprise to them that they really just didn't expect when it comes to elk hunting in Colorado? I'm going to say it's the biggest surprise to them is the physical challenge. Is it? As much as they think that, yeah, it, it really is. And every outfitter I've worked for has talked about the same thing, that guys just underestimate you know, how tough it is. And, and, you know, a good example is, you know, guys, guys think that I've had clients where they go out and run two to five miles every day, but they do steady, steady state cardio. Well, steady state cardio, it might help you in endurance a little bit, but as far as simulating the kinds of things that you're going to encounter in an elk hunt, it really doesn't do much because, you know, with elk hunting, the key things you need is you need you need some leg strength, you need some power to, to power up those hills up and down. Mm-hmm. And then really you need the high intensity cardio where you get your heart rate way up and then you know be able to recover so you can get steady enough for a shot. Say if you got to climb up to a bench or something like that, work a bowl, you know, so it's it's that aspect. Um and then you know the long days too. I mean, you're out there long days, I mean. Sometimes, you know, when you're early going, one of the biggest challenges I find is you got to actually get guys to slow down a little bit. Say, look, we're not going to kill ourselves these first couple of days because this is a five or a six day hunt is typically what most of them are. And you don't want to kill your guy in the first two days. And then they quit on you, which can happen very easily. Yeah. Yeah, I'll bet it can. I mean, I just it's so it's such a big deal to think about somebody who lives uh, and I'm not throwing rocks at him with this. It's it's just a reality of it. You know, you live somewhere that's flat, that uh, y- your elevation is, you know, not even a thousand feet. Um, and, and going from that extreme to the next, which is high country, Colorado, you know, Aspen kind of forests in these areas that are just, it's not like what TV portrays it, I think. And so... Um, I've always been curious about that and like what, as, as somebody who guides people in the high country of Colorado, like just the looks on their faces sometimes, I bet is, is a makes it worth it. And B, 
makes you realize maybe what you're up against sometimes. I don't know. Yep. How does and then, that? And then probably you know, What was that? Go ahead. One last thing I was one last thing I was going to say. Another area that comes to mind where guys can underprepare, if you will, is uh, you know, is really in two key areas: it, it, the skills aspect of it with shooting. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of guys think about shooting, and I don't care if it's archery or rifle. They think about going out shooting known distances. You know, if they're shooting at the range with a rifle, they're shooting off a bench, some kind of bench rest, that kind of stuff. Um, and one of the things that I, if I'm talking to clients before they come hunt with me, I'm saying, look, once you know that you have your weapon slated in, you know, now what I want you to do is I want you to go out and practice infield shooting positions. I want you to have all your gear on. I want you to have your backpack on. Your quiver should be on your bow. You should have your vinyl harness on the front. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you're shooting a bow, you know, it's, it's cool to use your range finder, but I want you to do some practicing where you, you walk off from the target, you turn around and shoot and guess the distance because kinds of opportunities are going to come in the field. And the more you can do to prepare yourself for that, to simulate real hunting situations in the field, the better off you're going to be. Um, same thing about, I preach a lot about a mental checklist, um, you know, with hunters, again, whether they're rifle or archery, that, you know, I talk about those kinds of things, things they should think about when they're home, about, you know, when you're going to go in, you're going to go set up on a bowl. You know, the first thing you want to do is you want to assess your shooting lanes. Then you want to pick out some distances and range. And that stuff really needs to become muscle memory because otherwise what happens is when the excitement of the moment comes in, you know, they're not going to be ready for it. You know, yeah. thinking about where where are their draw points? You know, is that bull comes from this way or that way? Where are their opportunities to draw? Going through all that stuff in their mind. And then probably the last thing is, is that uh, when that when they that moment moment of opportunity does surface and they get that shot, it's really making sure that they focus on that shot and not focus on the size of the bull's antlers and how good he's going to look over their fireplace because that's a recipe for a miss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, guilty. Um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. We've all done it. <laughs> What do you have? A, I'm always uh, talking about September elk hunting because that that you know obviously that's my favorite thing. Uh, but let's throw some love to the October or even uh, late season November guys that are out there hunting elk. Um, you know, and I don't care. I don't care what the method to take. I don't care if it's muzzleloader, rifle, archery, whatever. Um, when you're when you go out, whether you're with a client or or you're just kind of hunting on a, a personal hunt. Uh, elk aren't talking obviously because it's later into the year. How do you locate elk? What are you looking for to find elk on the landscape? Okay. In the later rifle seasons, of course, one of the things that, um, really helps a lot is weather. Um, you know, typically, in fact, they've, they've moved our season structure. Actually, actually hoping they move it back to what it was because it's fallen. Our fourth rifle season now doesn't fall till Thanksgiving week. And, um, oh, really? Yeah. And, and, and third rifle is like the week before that. And, you know, that's just really late here that you, st- you, you mentioned earlier about four wheeling into somewhere and then wondering if you're going to be able to get out. Yeah. <laughs> well, <It's> that's, <laughs> that's kind of a, right. But the one thing I will tell you surprisingly enough is that 
a lot of times third rifle season here, which used to be like the first week in November. Now it's the second week in November. But I heard it again this year. There's something about third rifle season that you get those cows that haven't been bred. They come in the heat, and those elk will be, start bugling again. Oh, yeah. Um, I've seen it numerous times. Um, so, you know, there is, obviously there's that. But one of my favorite ways to hunt once we get snow on the ground and stuff is that, you know, I really you let my binoculars do a lot of the work. I'm glassing, you know, because the elk stand out better. You don't even have to see animals. You can just see tracks. And and, and you're looking for areas where, you know, typically they're, where they're going to come out. And feed. You know, they're still going to go a lot of times into dark timber and north-facing stuff, and they don't care if the snow's deep. They're going to go in there and hang out during the day, but, you know, for a period of time. But, you know, those those high mountain meadows that get windblown where the snow blows off, mm-hmm. the stuff is south or southwest-facing, southwest that's where those animals are going to be because the grass and stuff is going to get exposed there quicker um, with the sun. Um, you know, I'm really watching those areas is how I – is the key way that I locate elk. Have you ever during the rifle have, seasons? Have you ever gotten a, a a bull fired up with a with a call in November after after Halloween? Yes. Oh, you have. Yes. Tell me about yes. that. That yes. that's that's super. Uh, I'm way curious about that. Yeah, I mean, they. You know, I, what I'll tell you that time of year, um, it's not so much. It's a different kind of fired up. It's more from the cow call than it is from the bugle. Okay. I mean, they will answer the bugle, but the cow call, you know, you know, is is what can really get them fired up. Yeah, estrus call is is the one that's going to get them fired up. Did you say you know, that time of year? Did you say estrus calls? Yeah, the you'll estrus start, call. You'll yeah. stay. You'll start cranking out at like an estrus call in November, and and well, uh, we'll... I might start. I might start with just some cow calls, and if he starts answering and he gets heated up, then I'll crank up the pace. Hmm. You don't have your you don't have a call handy, do you? No, I don't. Dang it. Okay. We'll no. we'll do that. I'll get you back on for school of September. We'll we'll uh, talk about that. Maybe we'll do like a school of November or or, or a school of rifle sure. elk. <laughs> uh cuz right. yeah, I'm way curious about that and everybody kind of has a slightly different way they do an estrus call. Uh but I don't know if yeah. there's there's even a right way or a wrong way to do that. You just got to sound like a a, a cow that is uh fairly excited right. you know um so i don't know that's that's pretty fantastic i've i've sure. never never heard of anybody calling in elk in in november yeah no and, and then the other thing that i will say is that um about the later rifle seasons and this is this, this is one that if i'm going to hunt rifle i i generally stay away from our second rifle here in colorado cuz it's that's that that can be the busiest hunting week of the year is that the but, october one yeah, that's the late October one. Gotcha. I, I either go first rifle where the elk are still high, typically as high as where we find them in the archery, and I got to pack in, or I go third rifle, you know, where you get you get a week break and typically we get more snow. But you know, as as the weather starts, we start getting more snow and, and colder, and the rut starts winding down. Those bulls, you know, of course, their fat supply is depleted. And so the one thing that you're going to find with those later rifle seasons is the window of opportunity throughout the hours of daylight grows significantly. Um, you know, in a case of point this past year, third rifle season, I was hunting with my son and um, it was a full moon and the moon was ridiculous at night. So we were finding that 
And nine o'clock in the morning, the elk were laying down. But one o'clock in the afternoon, they were up, and then they were up all afternoon feeding. Hmm. So you know, with that cold and snow, you know, and after after the stress of the rut on their bodies, but they they've got to feed, and and that cold and snow just triggers them. Where you know, a lot of times they're out feeding, you know, most of the the day you know at different points yeah. of time and a lot of times they're not bedded far from where they're feeding either so as long as they're not pressured you know you find them and, and you you bide your time and you're going to get a crack at one so if it's it's 10 30 11 o'clock in the morning you're out you're out kind of trying to locate elk you see a bunch of tracks that maybe cross this meadow area where uh they're they're feeding because uh, there's snow on the ground uh, and they're they, you know they, fe- they found some feed in that area is that something you you would just kind of sit on yeah, I would, I would sit on that, you know, or if it was a ways away, I'd figure out how to get there and I'd get over there by mid afternoon because good chance they're going to come out. Hmm. So, uh, again, I know I'm all over the place, Bob, but, um, I I'm curious about what, like the differences cause you guide fly fishing in the summer, right? Yep. And, and are you guys going after like cutthroats or what are you guys going after? Yeah, we're, I work at a place now called uh, Budges Wilderness Lodge, and um, we're about like 35 miles, give or take 36, off, off the Pace Highway. It's quite a ride in there. Yeah. But, um, and the primary fishing we have is is what I'll call it small to medium river fishing. And when I say medium river, it's, it's it tends to be on a smaller side. Um, but we're fishing for cutthroats. We're fishing, for, there's rainbows in there. Um, and there's brookies and I have heard some rumors about guys catching some browns in the lower, but I have not caught any of those yet. You know, mostly it's, you know, we go up river from our lodge, we're catching brookies and cuts. We go down river, we're catching all three. Hmm. Gotcha. Uh, browns are a lot of fun, I think, but, um, so we're cut through. Yeah, they so are. I, the, the reason I'm asking is, is what changes in terms of kind of to that same question I asked in terms of what. Or, or what fly fishing clients do that frustrate fly fishing guides? Um, fly fishing clients typically, uh, typically you can get some where you have to kind of feel the client out. Some people want help with their casting, and some people say they want help with their casting, but they really don't. <laughs> <laughs> So they don't take constructive criticism well, you know. Do you set and them up on a metronome? Out, <laughs> yeah, it is, it, it is what it is. And sometimes it can make your job more challenging because sometimes some of their habits can have a direct impact on them catching fish or not, you know, yeah. just like we're killing a bull. So. Yeah, 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 for sure. I I don't know. I, I've, always, I've always thought about doing, like, various fly fishing episodes for this show. Uh, and I yeah. did, I did one a while back and, um, you know, it didn't get, it didn't get a ton of action. I, I feel like fly fishing is just a completely different, I think what, one of the things that happens, Bob, uh, and I don't know if it's like this in Colorado, but like in Idaho, fly fishing gets kind of a bad rap because of the culture side of it. You know, the, the people that, that are way into fly fishing sometimes don't align with the, align with the same people that are way into elk hunting. And I hate that because, I mean, you, you just, people need to loosen up a little bit with that. It's a great time. I, in my opinion, fly fishing is the most efficient way to catch fish. And I don't care if you're talking on a river or on a lake or, or whatever. 
There's uh, fly fishing is the most efficient way to do it. And just because you don't like some of the people that do it, because let's face it, some, some fly fishermen are, they could be a little snobby. Um, and I get it. Uh, but I mean, it's the most efficient way to, to, to catch fish. And I, I don't know. I, I think it's a lot more fun anyway. It is. And what I'll tell you, what's helped me, and it's also helped me help people that want to learn fly fishing or are interested in fly fishing is, um, I've been part of the Orvis Pro program for, I want to say about 13 years. Mm-hmm. And the Orvis company changed its philosophy. And this is back when I first started, when I was first was a part of it, when I first started guiding fishing, that they went on a mission to say, we're going to simplify fly, fly fishing. We're going to get away from this elitist fisherman stuff and that it's technical, it's complex, and it takes all the skill. And they started simplifying it, and that's the way they taught it. They had these guide rendezvous every, every spring in Missoula, and I, I went to quite a few of these. And, you know, there was so much good information that was fed out of those those seminars about how to teach people how to fish, how to simplify it. You don't need to be a bug biologist. All you need to know yeah. is, well, the bug is about that big. He's that color and he's got that shape. And what in my fly box looks like that. And then teaching some people, some basics about casting, you know, and making it simple for them. And of course the equipment nowadays helps a lot too. A lot of these new fly rods, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of money to get something to cast decent, Yeah, you know, and yeah, no, what I sure. tell people is, I take, I take first-time people out fly fishing that have never picked up a rod before. They might arrive at our base lodge. You know, they get their stuff unpacked. They have lunch. I take them out on the lawn, and we talk about a few basic things, you know, with casting, work with them a little bit, and take them down the river, and off we go, you know. And, yeah. and uh, I tell them, send them home. I say, look, if you take your rod out, you go out two or three times a week and cast for 10 or 15 minutes each time. That's all it takes. You'd be surprised how you'll get good you know totally i think i think you nailed it because that's one of the things that's always driven me a little bit crazy when it comes to fly fishing is the way that it has been overcomplicated. and i don't know if that comes from marketing or uh this this uh highly technical cultural side of it where it's like you know um you have to be a bug biologist like you'd mentioned uh kind of thing but i, I think that it's it's actually the easiest way to do it. I mean, it really is. You you do have to learn to cast, and you gotta you you have to yep. be, have a basic understanding of what kind of bugs are floating what time of year. Other than that, all you gotta yep. do is present a reasonable representation of a food source to a part of the river where you know fish are at, and it's it's really not that hard. And and I think that that is <laughs> that that is the. Uh, one of the reasons why fly fishing takes so much flack is because I think that there are people that want other people that don't do it to think that it's this overly complicated, highly technical thing that only they're smart enough to do. I don't know. Maybe I'm going down a yeah. <laughs> rabbit trail with that. Yeah. No, you're a hundred percent correct. You're a hundred percent correct. It's, it really, it's so much fun. You know, when I moved to Colorado 30 years ago, I owned one fly rod and I had all this elaborate spinning equipment and cone riggers and all this, mm-hmm. you know, all this hoopla for fishing lakes back, back east and stuff. And you know what? I don't own any of that anymore. Now all I own is fly rods and reels. Yeah. <laughs> I become yeah. a fly fish because it's just so much fun. Yeah. You know, and yeah. you, you catch more fish. 
Oh, for sure. I, I, especially on a river. Like you said, I love the medium-sized river fishing. Uh, I, I do. Know, I still like to troll behind a boat and all that kind of stuff with, with regular traditional gear or whatever. But there's nothing like fly fishing. I mean, there's just nothing like it. it it's, it's, it's like, I don't know how to compare it. A lot of, I, I've done both rifle and bow hunting for elk. Uh, and it's not the same comparison. Like I've, I heard somebody say, well, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, an elk hunter using a rifle versus an elk hunter using archery equipment. Now it's, it's, it's even more than that. It's, it's different than that. And the, the, yeah. I, the, what is the word I'm looking for? Like the satisfaction you get out of catching a fish on a fly rod is like, is like way more than just a, you know, if you throw a night crawler out or, or catch it on a spinner. Uh, or a spoon or something, you know, and so I don't know where I'm well, going with this, but go ahead. It's, it's it's interesting that you uh that you bring up the trolling aspect because one of the one of the ways, one of my favorite ways to fish in the spring is that our lakes start to ice out, ice off here. Mm-hmm. I have these boats, you may have heard of them, they're made there's a guy by the name of Rich Stuber runs an outfit called uh, Watermaster Boats out of Missoula. Oh, yeah, yeah, And I yeah, met yeah. him, and I've got a couple of his boats, in, and um, I pack them everywhere. I put them on my mules, pack them into the high mountain lakes, whatever, put them on my back. Oh, but sweet. in the springtime, I will use those boats, and depending on late spring, I might have to go to sinking line, but I'll use floating line, maybe just a split shot or so. But the way that I find fish is through trolling, and I'll put a streamer on, and then I might run some small beaded nymph or scud behind it. And, um, you know, I go around these lakes and I troll until I start catching fish in front of a certain point or somewhere. And then I stand there and cast and I'll stay there and I'll catch fish one after another until they stop. You know, because these fish travel in schools and lakes. When, it, when the action slows down, then they pick up and they start trolling again. <laughs> and it, I'm telling you, it works really, really well. It's a great way to find fit. I'd love to do that. You know, it's I, a great. I'd love to. Yeah. If I was closer to you, I would invite myself on one of your uh, fishing yeah. trips in the in the early spring oh, we could or late do that. spring. Yeah, that'd be a ball. I'd love yeah. to learn how to do that. June, June is the month here. When, when oh, it's June. Get, oh, because you're talking yeah, about, it's high about June. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, lakeside fish are they're anywhere from. Maybe the lowest elevation is 8,500. I've kind of got a progression where I keep migrating higher, but, you know, some of the good ones around 9,000 9, feet, give or take. So Okay, so um, let's let's kind of switch back to river fishing for a sec uh, with, with, like, these mid-sized, okay. small creek. Um, what, I guess the, the type of river that most fishermen would think of when they think of fly fishing in the, uh, the, the Rocky Mountain region. And when I say Rocky Mountain, I mean all the way from Canada to uh, wherever it tapers off down there in Arizona, New Mexico, Mexico, you know, kind of area. Um, yep. So the, the, the Rocky Mountain fly fishing, can, do you have your, give us your, uh, your top three most recommended flies. Um, you know, I'm going to tell you that hopper and foam hopper are really hard to beat. In which, one, July which, and, and which one did it's, you say? It's a foam grasshopper imitation, you know, and there's different colors. I mean, because one of my favorite ways to fish these small rivers in the summertime is I'll put a, a foam hopper on top and it might be a size... It could be even the size as big as a size 10, 
um, you know, size eight even. And then I'll run some type of small nymph, maybe size 16 underneath it. And it would be beaded or non-beaded depending on the water, how clear and slow the water is. You know, with, with slower, clearer water, I tend to use uh, non-beaded. Um, you know, if the water's moving a little bit better, if the water's a little off color, I'll go with a, a beaded nymph. But, you know, certainly a hopper would be number one. I'm going to say, hmm. or it wouldn't, no, no priority of these. When you say my top three, I mean, a hopper is up there. The other one that I would say, Parachute Adams is a really big one here in Colorado with our, yeah. our rivers. That's a and big then, one um, you know, and then the other one, it's, it's really hard to say, you know, I mean, with, if I go to the, the nymph end of things, you know, it probably, it probably varies between the pheasant tail and a prince nymph. You know, they're both really good, you know, depending yeah. on the type of water you're fishing. So, God, that's fun. you know, I, I love and there's that. a ton of streamers that are good too. Oh but, man, I, I was going to ask you about streamer fishing. Cause I, I, Bob, I'm addicted to streamer fishing on a fly rod. I love oh, it. Yeah. I love it. I yes. just, I can't get enough of that. And it's such a, it's, it's just a different kind of thrill, but I'd be, I'd be remiss for, for those of you in North Idaho that might be listening or like Eastern Montana, or I'm sorry, Western Montana, um, up here in the North country, what, what I recommend doesn't differ much from Bob other than I've never used that, um, that hopper that you're talking about. So I'm going to try that because I, I'm super curious how well that would, I'm sure there's guys listening to this that have, they're like, yeah, no, no crap. Uh, works great. Uh, but I, I love the green drake. Yeah. I love the elk hair caddis. And and for nymphing uh, yep. subsurface, I love that stonefly for, for North Idaho. So if you guys listening, if you need a need a little yeah. lineup. And I would, put, I, I would definitely put the elk hair caddis up there with the parachute. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah, for sure. Definitely, you know. Uh, and probably the other thing I'll say is that I'm a – I'm a break. Of course, sometimes you can get fishing where it's, it's just so hot that you, you don't want a double rig. But mm-hmm. – um, you know, my objective, whether I'm doing like what we were saying earlier, with if I'm fishing lakes and I'm, you know, I'm trolling and then stopping at casting, or if I'm fishing rivers, you know, generally I've got two flies on, and my objective is is that I want to be catching fish on both flies, yeah, actively, and I can I keep switching until that happens, and you know, you'd be surprised when you when you start getting where you you know it's, it just makes the action work and be nonstop. God, that's fantastic. You have you have an open invite in North Idaho, Bob, if you ever want to come up and teach me to fly fish, because I've never been able to answer or master the, the two-fly setup, so that's pretty fantastic. No, it's a lot of fun. No, that'd be fun to do. I'd love to. I never... Idaho is the only state, Rocky Mountain state, I have not been to. I have a... Uh, I have a, a pretty epic river, not very far from my house, Um that uh, that I it's it's actually hard for me anymore to travel to go fly fishing. In fact, I really don't anymore because the river that I fish here, and I'm not going to say it on the air because I don't want uh, a bunch more yahoos coming up there and taking over my spot. But um, <laughs> I used to I used to think that uh, Wyoming was impossible to beat with some of the fly fishing there. Uh, I, I've I, I fly fished Colorado once, uh, and it was good. It was really good. Uh, but, but, uh, Wyoming was yeah. like kind of the, the, the Mecca to me. And in, in, in my opinion, until I hit this river up here close to where I live, the only hint I'll give is, is, uh, that it is in North Idaho. Uh, and nobody right. from <laughs> Spokane, Washington is allowed to come over and fish it. That's the law. 
It's not me. I didn't make the law. That is nice. the law. No, I'm kidding. That's not the law. But um, yeah, that's awesome. No, that's great, man. Uh, this has been this has been a lot of fun. Honestly, it's been it's been kind of a stress release talking, uh, just just talking about out, outdoor stuff. You know, talking elk hunting, talking uh, fly fishing. Uh, these are topics that I I, I kind of go a little bit dark on in the winter uh, due to, you know, th- this is that time of year when we've got anti-hunters out there pushing legislative actions and, and uh, you know, we try to deal with other things yeah. prior to spring. And and um, and so I need to do this more often. I- I'd love to get you back on the show in the future, man. I know I'm keeping you over an hour here. Oh, no worries. Anytime, you know, I mean, this is, this is my passion. You know, I'm not, like I said, I'm not guiding as much as i used to although i do guide a lot of fishing but you know during this time of year in particular you know i do ski a lot too but i've got plenty of time to do this kind of stuff and i i enjoy it a lot and and you know sharing the experiences that have been shared with me to pass it on as well as uh just being more wired into what's going on and some of the other topics that i know you get involved with with protecting our hunting and fishing rights because you know We've had it really good for a long time, but the time has come where we all got to be a lot more active um, yeah. in fighting for what we love because we got people trying to take it away from us. Absolutely. And one thing that before before we end this, uh, one thing that I, I, I actually wrote it down, I don't know if I put it in the new notes that I sent to you, Bob, so this might be a little bit of a surprise question. Hope you're okay with that. Uh, sure. Is when when we're talking to hunters that want to continue hunting, what, how old did you say you were? 60 something? I'm 66. I'll be 67 next, next July. Okay. So for those of you listening, I, and, and one of the reasons why Dirk said that when he grows up, he wants to be like Bob is because when you look at somebody who is 66, Bob is not what you envision. Uh, you are in incredible shape. Your your the Instagram shows this is a you know picture and video proof that you are way up in the backcountry and holding your own. In fact, I would argue just by by looking at you yeah. uh, that you could probably uh, hit the backcountry more aggressively and go further and work harder than most people that are younger than me. Uh, and I'm just a spring chicken. I'm just a spring chicken here, Bob. I'm only uh, 42. Yeah. So. Um, the, the question I have is what advice can you give somebody that is, I'm not talking about the youngsters out there. I'm talking about the guys that are just getting to be around that 40, uh, to 50 year range that, um, maybe see their hunting years starting to sunset a little bit. And we want to extend that for as long as possible, uh, because I want to hunt until I die. And, and, yep. and I want to know what it is you do, yep. what do you focus on and what advice can you offer guys, uh, around that age to be doing what you're doing at 66 years old? Cause it's super impressive. No, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I definitely have some things. I mean, you know, there, it really goes the full gamut as it relates to physical fitness, you know, starting with nutrition you know, I try to eat right. That doesn't mean that I'm, you know, uh, you know, I worry, you know, I worry all the time about what I eat, but I try to eat, I try to eat quality meals and, and, and not eat a lot of junk. Um, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, uh, I mean, I, inst- 
still enjoy a drink. I enjoy some wine. I enjoy some whiskey if I'm in the back country, but I do it in moderation. You know what? And then the other thing I'll say is never giving up working out and, and, you know, and, and doing some kind of training, whatever works for you. I definitely um, have some training that works for me. You know, I, I, I tend to, to uh, spend a lot of time in the gym lifting weights, but I've changed my routines as I've gotten older that I don't do some of the same exercises um, that I used to do when I was younger, or for sure, I do them with a lot less weight. So it's all about adapting and, and just continuing to stay active. You don't need to be a high performance sports athlete to do this stuff into a late age, but you do need to carry yourself. Try to keep those extra pounds up. Try to maintain as much muscle. Get older, yeah. which can be hard to do. And probably the other thing that I wrestled might have, in fact, I'm just coming back from it now, Jim, is that I had Dirk knows I had my left shoulder touched up, and that was kind of a wear and tear thing where, where the joint was just starting to get compressed, and I had impingement. And it's it's great. It's coming really quick, but. What I'm going to say is that if you start to get aches and pains, and that typically doesn't happen too much in your 40s, maybe, you know, for me, when I started having, you know, where my body started failing me some is when I got into my late 50s. But what what I did do um, with that was I didn't play around. I went and got help right away. You know, whether that helped be physical therapy, oh, whether advice. it be acupuncture, um, you know, in, in cases I've had to have surgery, I, I have two artificial hips and that's. You know, I used to be able to lift a lot, a lot of weight when I was a younger guy. You know, that's why I could, you know, throw a half elk on my back and go forever, you know, but (laughs) now I've got the hips to prove it. But, but, you know, what I'll say is not bragging. I'm just saying that this is about taking care of yourself and also the type of, the type of doctors that we have out there. Now, if people were to see me ski, I'll still, I still ski moguls. I still ski the backcountry. Um, I'm still putting elk quarters on my back if I have to. I don't look to do it, you know, and if I can, I bone them out because I don't want to carry all that bone weight anymore. Yeah. But, um, you know, the point is I still can do it. And so there's a lot of good help out there that if you have things that are nagging you, go get help. You know, some people need help with training. Some need help with diet. Some need to be as part of a group to do it. You know, I, I don't, I played sports my whole life. So training has become a, you know, a habit for me, but Certainly, I would encourage guys, whatever that help is, go get it because there's there's a lot of good people out there that will help you, you know, whether it be with nutrition, training, or or you have some physical challenges that you're dealing with you need to overcome. Don't try to do it on your own. Get help. I really like that advice. I, I think that there's there's a lot to be said for that point exactly with uh, fr- from the standpoint of, like I told you, I'm 42 and yeah. I have severe, uh, my left knee is severely arthritic and it, it comes from uh, some things, uh, some injuries that came out of when I was in the Marines. Um, the Marines is pretty yeah. rough on your knees. And, you know, when you're, yeah. this is what I would say for, for, for dudes and, and well, for gals as well. Uh, I, I know our bodies age differently between guys and gals, but like when you're a young male in your 20s, you just think you're invis- invincible and your body is going to be invincible forever. And what what you don't realize at that age is how quickly you go from early 20s to early 40s. Um, it, it's it's like a, the blink of an eye. And I, I just wish I would have had somebody like you tell me that back then when my, my knees started bothering me 
around the time, let's see, around the time that uh, my my 13, almost 14-year-old daughter was born. Uh, so it was like 2008, 2009, and I'd been out of the Marines for, I don't know, five years or so. Severely arthritic. Uh, and now there's not a heck of a lot we could do about it other than, you know, when I notice uh, that it really starts hurting, Bob, is when I get sedentary and I don't move. Like in the winter, when I when I kind of yeah. I get socked in with uh, all the snow, and I don't do all because I, I, what I do to work out mainly is hike with a pack on. That's that's the lion's share of what I do right right now because you know I live miles and miles from the closest gym, and I just am too cheap to buy the equipment. But hopefully that's going to change this spring. Um, the the point is is yeah. when I stop doing that, that's when my knee starts hurting. If I'm on top of my game, like last September. I, I put on some serious miles this last year, and my knee didn't bother me a, at all. But it's bothering me today, yeah. sitting here in mid-January, because I've gotten lazy as all hell. And so, anyways, no, that's great, man. That That is great advice. And I, I agree with Dirk, man. When I grow up, I want to be like you. I, I want to be uh, doing what you're doing at your age. Uh, you've just got a good, solid handle on it, man. I just it, You're uh, you're an inspiring guy. So, um I appreciate. No, no, thank you. You know, what was that? Go ahead. I was, no, I just said thank you. You know, and I, obviously, I've had some good help along the way. I will say, like my son, his his degree is in high performance sports training kinesiology. He's helped me a lot. And yeah, mm. uh, you know what I would pass on to the younger guys, um, and, and you can understand this as well, Jim, is that you know when I was in my twenties and thirties. You know, we, we all went through that Superman period. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the part that I didn't realize that I, I will say that there are some things that I would have done different. Um, and because things that you get away with in your 20s and 30s that you think you're getting away with, they got a way of showing up later in life. So, yes, they do. You know, in the gym, train smart. Don't, you know, you want to do a high single now and then see how much you can squat or deadlift fine. But I would not make a steady habit of those kinds of things because you're setting yourself up for back problems or knee problems, you know, or whatever else down yeah. the road and train smart. You know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be, you know, a professional bodybuilder to be an elk hunter. You know, you want to train smart or probably bodybuilder is the wrong example, a power lifter, you know, because yeah, you're going to break your body down if you do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I totally agree, Bob. Um, really good advice. Uh, seriously, I hope you guys listening, uh, you younger guys out there in your 20s, um, I, I, Bob is not kidding when he says that stuff just doesn't go away. All it's doing is hiding and giving you an ego. And uh, it, it does yeah. come back with a vengeance. And so, uh, and we've all been there. So, so don't get hard on yourself. But think about that as you're going forward and training and, and, you know, where we've got years ahead of us. And I just, I, I want to be like Bob. I want to be hunting when I'm in my um, mid-60s and, and still out there enjoying this thing that we do because, uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is fantastic information. So, Bob, you, you up to come back on for like a school of September or something later in the year? Absolutely, yeah. Let me know, Jim, anytime. You want to talk fishing or we can, we can talk about getting together and doing some fishing too. So Yeah, absolutely. Don't don't threaten me with a good time, Bob. I'll be there uh, anytime. We're talking fly fishing. I'm I'm uh, I'll be all over that like a fat kid on a Twinkie. I, I love fly fishing. So, uh, and it's not something we talk about much on the show. But I I'd love to do it with you if if there was ever an opportunity we can get. Um, 
Heck, we could meet in Wyoming or Montana, and even if fly fish in New River, neither one of us has ever hit before. So that'd be fun too. Well, tell everybody how they could find you, Bob. I think I gave yeah, your, your I am, Instagram. I'm on Instagram, uh, Bob T seven fifty six. I'm also on Facebook, Bob Williger. Um, feel free to send me a friend request on on Instagram. You can just follow me. On my account is public, so. Um, not a problem there. And I, I try to post stuff throughout the year, what I'm doing, particularly I think where it's really interesting is those that, that don't live in elk country or mm-hmm. some of the Rocky Mountain fishing country that we do here. I try to share a lot of that stuff just so people can see what it's like and understand the experience and hopefully someday they get to do it. So, Well, what I'm looking at, guys, I'm on Bob's Instagram right now. He's got everything from riding mules in the backcountry with wall tents setting up wall tents in the snow, cooking elk meat, uh, working out in the gym, uh, drinking whiskey, uh, catching fish on the river, uh, skiing in the, in the back country. And I love this picture you posted this, uh, what, whatever you want to call it, a throwback or something, but, uh, you, you posted that picture from years ago. Um, and you were a stud yeah. then too, man. Yeah. Holy cow. Uh, so oh, yeah, yeah. That, was in, that was in my early thirties then. Yeah, that was something that I was a force to be reckoned with back then. But. <laughs> well, you still <laughs> are. You still yeah. are. So, Bob, I appreciate you but, joining me, man. This this was a lot of fun. Uh, glad I got a new friend out of out of this whole thing. So, I better I better send Dirk a, a thank you text or something. Let him know for um, letting me know who you were and and why you should come on the show because it was worth it. So, thanks again, and uh, let's let's keep in touch and talk soon, man. All right, sounds good, Jim. Thanks for the opportunity. You made it. That's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure you're following us on Instagram at the Western Huntsman and write us a good review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on the